Our scripture reading this morning, as we continue the Genesis series, is Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Togarma. And the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabtika. And the sons of Ramah, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kela, and Reson between Nineveh and Kela, the same as a great city. And Mizraim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehabim, and Naphtahim, and Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, out of whom came Philistine, and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heph, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar unto Geza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboam, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. And to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born. The children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. And the children of Aram, Uz, and Hol, and Gether, and Mash. And Arphaxad begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begat Elmodad, and Sheleph, and Hazer Maveth, and Jira, and Hedoram, and Uzal, and Dikla and Obol, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Jachtan. And their dwelling was from Mesha, as thou goest into Sephar, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem, 
after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Dear congregation, Genesis chapter 10 would not be a natural choice for a minister to preach on. It's difficult to read, much less to to preach on as a chapter. It's also a chapter that is difficult to, to understand fully because we don't know all the names that are involved. We can't identify much more than half of the nations that are listed here. We know that Genesis 10 presents us with a table of the nations, as it is called. But some of those names have changed over the years. Some are unknown to us, and some are not recorded anywhere else. Now, happily, there are many of these names that are identifiable, even if their name is changed. For example, in verse 4, Kittim was the ancient capital of Cyprus. In verse 6, Cush is one of the words in the Bible that identifies Ethiopia. And Mizraim later became Egypt. And in verse 7, Sheba is identified with Arabia, and so on. So the fact that many of the names, on the other hand, can be identified, gives us reason to think this chapter must have some important things to teach us. And indeed, we believe it does. And the first thing we need to notice in this chapter is that there are 70 Nations in this table of nations, this, these nations of the world listed here. Seventy nations based on ethnic, geographic, linguistic, political, religious factors. Seventy nations multiplying under God's providence as distinct tribes and, and peoples. Seventy is a number of perfection. It's composed of both seven and ten. Numbers of perfection in the Hebrew mind. And so 70 was particularly a number of completeness. Now, that does not mean that all the nations of the earth are, are listed here. There are nations that are not listed. We know that. The scholars have proven that to us. So this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. In fact, we read that Moses says in verse 5, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. He says, as it were, there are more nations than I am mentioning here. And in verse 32, he says, By these were the nations divided in the earth, after the flood. So it's not so much an exhaustive list as it is a list of symbolic completeness, if I may put it that way. The number 70, as I hope to show you, being important here, as we are given in summary form, the nations 
of the world. Really, the use here is not for exhaustiveness, but it's more theological to teach us some very important truths about the world and the nations of the world. And certainly, this week, as we have come out of the elections, as we have passed through Veterans Day, and as we think about the nations of the world with regard to our persecuted brothers and sisters around the globe, certainly today we need to hear this message about the nations of the world. And so I draw your attention to Genesis 10 this morning, and we're going to focus especially on verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So with God's help then this morning, I want to speak to you about the nations of the world. First, we will see these nations reflected in rebellious humanity. Rebellious humanity. Secondly, in what I'm calling replacement humanity. Replacement humanity. And thirdly, restored humanity. The nations of the world reflected in rebellious, replacement, and restored humanity. Genesis 10 is divided into three sections. Each section named after one of the sons of Noah. If you follow along with me here, that would be helpful. Verses 2 through 4, you notice we have the descendants of Japheth. And if you count there, you'll notice these descendants include 14 nations. Now, Japheth is listed first. First because the descendants of Japheth are the people that are furthest away from the people of Israel. They're on the fringes of the known world, to the north and to the west. They, uh, they dwelt in what we call Russia and Eastern Europe and Asia Minor, Greece and Cyprus. Scholars, scholars have summarized this as the Indo-Europeans, the area of India and the area of, of Europe, Indo-Europeans. These are nations that didn't know Israel very well, that didn't have much connection with Israel. They're distant peoples of the earth. But then in verses 6 through 20, we have the descendants of Ham, which includes 30 nations. And these are much closer to Israel. These nations are Israel's enemies. They're hostile. Many of them have a powerful influence on Israel, usually for evil. Some of them have enslaved Israel, or they've affected Israel in some other way. Ethiopia, Egypt, Libya, Canaan, Babylon, and so on. And so they include the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Hittites, the Amorites, and other, other neighbors. And then in verses 21 through 31, you notice we have the nations descended from Shem, 26 nations. They're called the Semites. They include the Chaldeans, the Assyrians, the Persians, and of course, the Hebrews, Abraham and David and Jesus, boys and girls, as you know, descended from Shem. And they come last 
because they are the most important nations for Israel. They're the focus of interest. This is what Genesis will deal with from here on in, the descendants of Shem. Now, this is one of the patterns you see of the book of Genesis. The writer Moses always addresses the less important first, and then he moves on to the focus of attention. So when it comes to the descendants of of Cain and Seth, he first deals with Cain, and then the descendants of Seth. Later on, he first deals with the descendants of Ishmael, and then with Isaac. Later on, first Esau, then Jacob. And so here, he first deals with Japheth, Ham, and then Shem. Perhaps you say, well, that's all well and good, but, but why is this chapter in the Bible? What does it mean? And of course, as you can imagine, there have been some very fanciful interpretations in church history of this chapter. But actually, Genesis 10 is here for a quite simple reason. It's a transition chapter from the early ancient world over into the world of the descendants of Shem and then to focus particularly on one man and on his family, namely Abraham. And so God, before he takes his camera, as it were, and focuses and zooms in on Abraham and his family, which will take us from Genesis 11 all the way through Genesis 50, God gives us first a table of the nations. Genesis has has been all about, the opening chapters of Genesis has been all about the world, about Noah, the worldwide flood, the whole earth, all the nations. So now in this transition chapter, we have a table of the nations, and then God is going to zero down in and focus on Abraham. And the rest of the Old Testament essentially will be focused on that family and his descendants, the children of Abraham. So here in this chapter, God sets before us a final time, the context of the whole of humanity, all the nations of the world. And he reminds us that all that is to come, the history of salvation, will be unfolded against the background of the nations of the world. And God gives us, as it were, in this chapter, three different snapshots of humanity. The first one I'm calling rebellious humanity. That is to say, in Genesis 10, God sets before us millions upon millions of people. If you add up all these nations, name is piled on top of name. And nation follows nation. So quickly we, we struggle to pronounce them all correctly. And yet each one of these names represents thousands and tens of thousands, perhaps millions of people. And so chapter 10 gives us a rather breathtaking sweep of the whole Mediterranean world and even beyond. It's a bird's eye view, a satellite picture of all humanity. And what God is doing is he's reminding the reader, reminding the Israelite, not to become, even though the future history is going to be focused on them, not to become parochial, introverted, and narrow, thinking only of themselves and their concerns, but they are to think of the nations. The covenant God is going to make with Abraham and with Israel 
He makes in the context of this teeming, diverse nations of the world and all their stunning variety all over the earth. But why are they all over the earth? Boys and girls, you know that answer. They're not just simply fulfilling God's command in Genesis 1 to fill the earth and subdue it. That's partial. Partially true, of course. But there's a darker side to the answer to this question. This scattering over the earth in Genesis 10, in all these nations, is the result of God's judgment on human pride and arrogance. And we'll consider that next week, God willing. But actually, you see, chronologically, Genesis 11 precedes Genesis 10. Genesis 10 is the aftermath of chapter 11 where the people tried to build the Tower of Babel, tried to have one language and and usurp God's authority, and God comes down in judgment and scatters the nations. So in chapter 10, we have here the effects. We have post-Babel judgment. That's even hinted at in, in verse 25 when we read about Peleg. His name means division. The earth was divided in his time so that people went out into different nations and developed different languages. And so what we have in Genesis 10 is is a, a table of rebellious mankind. Mankind spread abroad by the judgment of God, scattered mankind, disunited mankind. Mankind divided and weakened by God, split into nations by God, broken into hostile fragments by God. God keeps rebellious humanity in a state of competition, a state of flux, as it were, so that rebellious humanity might not all be united and rise up against God again. And the end result is that rebellious humanity can never become too strong because they're always fighting with each other and undermining each other and attacking each other. So nation is at another nation's throat. One nation is at war with another. That's true to this very day. There's over 30 nations on the globe right now that are, are at war, either civil war or warring against one another. It's not just Iraq and Afghanistan. Many African nations and other places are at war. Showing the rebellion that lives in the heart of man. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things, by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley, to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Pre-order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org forward slash rst4. And how we've seen that again this week, haven't we? much division there is, even in our own land, even in the elections we had this week, division and bitterness, all a reflection of the rebellious character of humanity. 
But also think about the persecuted Christians around the globe. How much antagonism there is against Christianity. There's no religion so persecuted against in all the world today as Christianity. That's why we have this day, this 11th annual day of international day of, for the persecuted church, a day of prayer. Because we can no longer ignore the plight of persecuted Christians around the world. People are dying by the thousands for naming the name of Christ. Just some weeks ago, when I was in, in the UK, I met a family from Saudi Arabia. The man is a mission worker there. He's got another job, of course. He can't tell the government he's a mission worker. But when he left, he and his wife and children, they were all being hugged by all the people in the church because they very well knew that if anyone finds out in Saudi Arabia that he's really a mission worker, he'd be killed. He's expecting to be killed. That's true in Iran. It's true in Sudan. There's imprisonment, there's torture, there's death in many countries of the world for naming the name of Christ. Millions today cannot gather in freedom like we can. Think of all the house churches in China. They can only gather with small groups, hoping their service won't be interrupted. Uh, Reverend Wang and his wife. Uh, Reverend Wang is preaching in, in Lansing today, so he's not here today, but... He tells us, he just couldn't believe when he came here that we could worship in a building like this and get more than 50 people together. <laughs> get hundreds of people together. It was amazing to him. With no fear that people would come and interrupt our worship. See, what a blessing that despite rebellious mankind, despite the fact that elections maybe didn't go the way we wanted, despite the fact of sin, of, of, of enmity against God, of depravity. We can still gather freely in our church, but we have to remember there are tens of thousands of people who can't do that. Last year, sources that followed these statistics have argued that there were at least 150,000 Christians martyred simply for being Christians. In the last century... There were more Christians martyred for the Christian faith than all other 19 centuries combined. We live, congregation, in the midst of rebellious mankind. Genesis 10, with all this divisive rebellion into nations and languages as an affront to the authority of God, this is a picture of the world even to this day. And we know that in the last days... There will be a great, united, rebellious world empire. And we will be in dangerous times indeed. And we may well be subject to persecution as well. But this is the world at that time. Rebellious humanity, judged by God. And throughout this chapter, there are hints of, of the progress of sin in the world. The progress of of uh, this rebellion. The nations mentioned here, like Asher, which is the ancient name for Assyria, were known for their utter godlessness and paganism. And other nations as well were very wicked. Verses 13 through 19. 
we see detail about the descendants of Egypt and Canaan and Mizraim, I mentioned already, is the Hebrew name for Egypt. And these two nations greatly impacted the Hebrews, reminding the Hebrews repeatedly of the idolatry of the Egyptians and Canaanites, their immorality, their vileness. The Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel. The Canaanites occupied the promised land to which they were traveling. Both of them gave Israel lots of trouble. So, Moses is painting here, writing to this people in his time. He's he's painting a dark picture. Here are the nations of the world, created by God, descended from Adam and from Noah. But what are they doing? They're rebelling. They're being alienated from God. They are rebellious humanity. And it's not only the nations, it's also individuals. Consider only the infamous Nimrod spoken of here in verses 8 through 11. He's the first great tyrant and empire builder. His very name, Nimrod, means in Hebrew, let us rebel. Let us rebel. Verse 8 says, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. It means he struggled to, to gain a position of rule, of course, of authority. Nimrod just didn't get out his hunting gear and go into the woods with a bow and arrow to shoot deer. He was a hunter of men. That's what the original word means here. A hunter of people. And you can find references to that same word in other Old Testament books. And we read in Assyrian inscriptions that their kings hunted people. Nimrod was a cruel man, a tyrant. He hunted people. And from killing people, you see, he established his power base by force. Verse 9 says, he did this before the Lord. He had no respect for the Lord. He killed people boldly in the open view of heaven, knowing God would see. He was presumptuous. He was brazen. He was a man of obvious influence. He built the, the kingdom of, of Babel or, or Babylon. So he was, he was someone very much responsible, no doubt, in this whole connection with the Tower of Babel and everything that was coming of this rebellious humanity. The only way we can escape the curse of God is not by rising up in defiant rebellion like Nimrod. It is not that that we need. But we are to turn to him who took the curse upon himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who took the very nature of a servant. Made in the form of man. And found in the appearance of man. Humbled himself and became obedient. Even to the death of the cross. To redeem sinners, believers from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for them. This is the way to respond as a nation, as an individual, as a people. To come to Christ where the curse of God against sin is poured out. To be clothed in his righteousness. Not to become a hunter of men, but a seeker for God. To find our life hid in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to live lives of humble service to the human family rather than open defiance against the human family. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, 
please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.